0: Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds Podcast, brought to you by Donor Search, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Today, I speak with Chris Carney, founder of Factory, Europe's leading prospect research agency, instructor in fundraising at the University of Barcelona, director of Fundacio Terra, and author of three books on fundraising and philanthropy, including his latest, how philanthropy is changing Europe. I spoke with Chris about his personal and professional journey, which started in Scotland and eventually led him to Spain, the generosity he's witnessed along the way, and how nonprofits can be the leaders of change in the years ahead.
1: Well, why Spain? It's a it's a very good question. I mean, it's it was a number of factors all coming together at once. The principal motive was that my partner Jordan and I have have travelled quite quite a bit anyway. We travelled in Latin America, and I travelled in Africa, and so on. L- my travels partly linked to my work with uh, with NGOs. And when we had kids, um, we just really wanted them to experience uh, a different culture and and particularly to get off the island of Britain. The kind of initial thing was, well, we both spoke Spanish because we'd both been in Latin America, so, you know, um, let's go to Spain. <laughs> then we started looking into it, and we, in fact what we did was we sold our house in England, and we bought a, a a van and a tent, and we headed off to Spain with a two-year-old and a four-year-old in a van and a tent, and we spent six months travelling around Spain uh, looking at all the different corners and wondering where it might, might be nice to live. And Spain is, of course, fascinating. I mean, it's like it's like the USA in, in, a, in a kind of miniaturized version in the sense that it's it's really a, a single nation or a single state, sorry, made up of lots of different cultures or nations. So, you know, the Catalans are different from the people who live in the south in Andalusia and they're different people who live in Euskadi the the Basque people on the, on the Atlantic coast and they're different from the Galicians who live in the northwest corner and all of them are different from the people who live in Madrid so there's lots of different cultures in this one in this one country and um and yeah we spent we spent 6 months traveling around looking for a place to live and eventually deciding on on Catalonia and Barcelona as the as the place for us how is that going with a 2-year-old and a 4-year-old well, that was fantastic, of course, because you know you get you get to play your way around Spain. It's lovely. Uh, it was a great adventure for them. I think it was a fantastic learning experience for them in the sense you know, that they, they've become as now veteran travelers. They travel everywhere. They have almost no fear of traveling. So my daughter is currently in Africa, and my son is in Sweden, and and uh, and so so I think that that you know that was that was great. But uh, you know it was lovely to you know to to see Spain through children's eyes it was it was really really fabulous your
0: eyes must have been wide open though as well because as you say you both spoke
1: Spanish but
0: the my understanding is the Spanish and Latin America let alone all the different cultures because they are so various there as well is quite different uh, to what you would experience in Spain so what was it like for the two of you not only with small children but <laughs> with a tent going to a place where the language was very similar, but the culture may have been unique to it, unto itself.
1: Well, this is what we found you know, in each of the corners of Spain and, and the center, as it were, the, cult, the culture was quite distinct. You know, the, this sort of incredibly relaxed and wonderful early evening stroll that you take when you're in Seville, in Andalusia in the sunshine between the orange trees, um, you know, it's super relaxed and you 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 stop at a little a little bar and have some tapas and a, and a and a glass of wine and then you stroll on and maybe have another one later on. You know, that's very different from the kind of hustle and bustle of where I am speaking to you now from, which is Central Barcelona, which is uh, you know, very business like and very business focused and people are cramming as much as they can possibly into into every possible hour. And that again is different from you know from from galicia the northwest corner where um you know again without without stereotyping too much where this you know there's an atlantic a sea-based you know culture and people you know left from galicia in fact to go to to the americas and and elsewhere um so there's a sort of there's a sort of quite perilous sea-based uh, culture up there so those things were all different. The, the language was, of course, different from the language we learnt in in Latin America. But then, of course, we settled in the end. Uh, we settled. We lived for the last now twenty two years north of Barcelona, in near a little village, which is a Catalan speaking village. So we had to then learn Catalan, and and that was, you know, a great experience because the kids learnt it first. They absorbed it and sort of picked it up. Faster than than we did as as uh, as adults, and so we had this situation where our children could speak a language that we could not speak. Mm. So we'd go to the you know we'd go to the shops, and uh, you know the butcher or the greengrocer would say something, and I would say to my son, "What did he say?" <laughs> and my son would explain it to me in English. So it kind of reversed the polarity. Normally, with you know. The adults know everything and the children know nothing, that kind of idea, which I don't agree with anyway. But anyway, that's the general picture. But in our case, um, the kids knew everything and we knew nothing. So it was a great reversal of power in in parenting. This desire for
0: trust, that, that must go way back for you. Where are you from originally?
1: So I was, I was born in Glasgow and then brought up on the west coast of Scotland uh, on one of the lochs on the, on the west coast of Scotland, Loch fine um so si um and spent my first uh, my first 18 years uh in in Scotland leaving um then to in fact go traveling uh, i i um i i traveled around uh, around italy with a, with a friend on a bicycle um and that was beginning that was the beginning of me of me traveling on my own um i it travel is travel is such a Wonderful thing to do because of the because of the humanity that one meets, you know, the the human beings that one meets, the people, the variety of people, and the almost almost universal, incredible generosity of people when when one is travelling. You know, people who invite you into their homes in all kinds of different places and and them in all kinds of conditions. I mean, Jordan, my partner and I, she and I, travelled, <clears throat> she and I walked down the the sort of spine of the Andes uh, about thirty years ago. And we would, you know, we would stop in tiny, tiny, by tiny, tiny little houses and be invited inside by people who had really nothing, you know, and they would share their almost nothing with us. So travel really, for me, is a sort of reinforcement of the idea that we humans are fundamentally generous.
0: Maybe that's a a way for us to talk about another piece of your story, which is, your work in philanthropy, but even before we go there, you you were uh, from Glasgow, as you said, from Scotland, and then uh, you took these, it sounds like these miraculous trips, and then, but you went to school. So where did you,
1: where did you study and what did you study? Well, that's the sad part, Jay. (laughs) I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I'm from the, I'm from the classic middle class, perhaps even upper middle class in Scotland, um, which is a very small, club of people in the end and so I went to uh, private school to boarding school <clears throat> from the age of eight to 18 oh. which which was not a great experience for me I mean it, it, uh, you know I, I learned a lot and it you know I, I went on from there to other things but um, wasn't it wasn't it wasn't, wasn't a great experience but um, uh, that's what one did that's what that's what happened to people in my you know my class and um, you know, we had the one had the experience then of really living in a very, very what was then and, and probably still is quite you know really closed society. One was living in a in a bunch of people who 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 never really looked out beyond their their middle class locations <laughs> and, and values. Um, and in fact, what happened to me, Jay, was that, and this is you know perhaps a little bit of an explanation of what then happened to me what happened to me was when i was 19 i fell in love with a, a wonderful german woman who who took me for the very first time to poor parts of glasgow i'd never actually entered the poorer districts of glasgow and she took me to um first of all the a market called Barra's market in in glasgow which is a sort of market for secondhand goods and other things. And then she took me onto, onto other places where I could, where I saw how people were living. And I suddenly realized then that there was a whole, there were tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who were living in, in great poverty right next to where I was living in, in great comfort, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that one day changed my life. That was the day when I decided to focus on poverty as the thing that would, you know, the thing that would drive me through through the rest of my life. And that's what I've done.
0: I know that some of your early work was at organizations like, I think, muscular dystrophy and voluntary service, and a hospital and so forth. Mm-hmm. Was that an extension of that? Did you look for an opportunity that might give you a chance to work with others in those ways, or did, was that kind of happenstance What how did that start?
1: Well, um, I, you know, I went to university, I, I got my degree, I got, I got into the sort of standard rotation of, or the standard sort of offers of jobs. At the end of that, I took a job in a bank rather foolishly, hoping that it would teach me how to run my own business so that I could set up a business that would employ people and reduce poverty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was a tragic mistake and um, I lasted a year in the bank, um, didn't like it at all and looked around for something more wholesome. And that was when really having that even that the, that the career existed or the job existed i um saw a job as a fundraiser for the muscular dystrophy campaign and uh and joined them and joined them and spent four years with them and learned raising trade uh as we did at that point you know entirely on the job you know so I ran, I organized events and I organized direct marketing campaigns and I organized appeals to trusts and foundations and companies. And, you know, one just did everything. Um, and, and, and learnt. yeah, learnt the trade there. And then subsequently, as you say, with voluntary service overseas and with, uh, uh with, uh, uh, King's college hospital in Camberwell.
0: It's funny. Some people, when they interact with fundraising, they have, two different reactions. And one is that they see that as an avenue to, to do these things to address, for example, poverty or illness or a, a number, so many different things. But others approach it with cynicism. Uh, they, they think about the money and the, the nature of having to ask people to do things. Or um, You were new to this. I know it was coming out of the world of banking, but you had this view of the world. It sounds like where you really wanted to make a difference. You really wanted to help people who had a lot less than you had grown up with that you had discovered. Uh, so your reaction to fundraising was what, and, and, and how did you, um, you know, meld those ideas? So you felt comfortable with the idea of being a revenue producer on behalf of charity versus let's say, uh, going into the field and working somewhere.
1: Well, it, I mean, it, fundraising was, and still is, for me the perfect job because you know i'm 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 good at selling stuff you know i mean i could i could have become a second-hand car salesman or, or or uh or indeed have sold banking products i suppose if i could have faced the moral dilemma but um fundraising this morning i was a meeting with uh with one of the sort of significant philanthropists here in here in barcelona and talking to him about his his philanthropy and you know i was pitching to him uh, a couple of projects i'm involved in that uh, i think he might well be interested in and you know i love it i love i love being able to sell people stuff but know that the stuff i'm selling is going to do good i mean what what's what knows better than that you know i'm not selling them some you know useless gas guzzling car i'm i'm you know i'm selling them something that's really going to make make people's lives better and and so if I can, you know, if I can use my my sales ability, I won't use the rude word that I might use about how I how I talk about things. But you know, I mean, if I can use my selling ability to 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 make one person's life better, then I'm that's I'm just that's me. I'm really happy. <laughs>
0: So uh, as you made that journey through a number of organizations, and I guess in a relatively short amount of time having that experience, how did you then move over into this other world of research, which has been such a big part of your professional life?
1: I mean, I, um, I, I, with Muscle Dystrophy Campaign, I, I got involved in what was then called the Year of Disabled People um and through that i'd met a member of parliament a labor party member of parliament um alf morris who became lord morris um and he asked me to become his research assistant so i was a fundraiser during my days and i would go each evening or three evenings a week i'd go to the house of commons and work for him as a research assistant on issues to do with human rights essentially human Mm -hmm. rights Mm abilities um and that got me i mean the house of commons library is a unique source which is unfortunately not available to the general public a unique source of uh, information about pretty much anything you care to you care to look into and i got fascinated by you know the uh, research and researching researching things and researching ideas and realized that fundraisers were beginning to take an interest in bigger donors Perhaps just trusts and foundations, but also wealthier individuals. I mean, this is this is a long, long time ago. This is in 1990, <clears throat> um, and realised that you know perhaps it'd be useful to be able to do some research and find out more about these foundations and more about these people, and and inform the fundraisers and therefore help their fundraising. And that's the that was the origin of Factory, which is the company I set up in in 1990 to do what we now know as prospect research. Uh, I, I didn't know it was called Prospect Research until um, during 1990. I I got in touch with a wonderful person called Helen Brown, who you know very well. Um, and Helen told me, this: the thing you do is called Prospect Research. And uh, and we've been friends ever since. <laughs> um, so, um, so, yeah, I got involved in, in research initially, doing prospect research. But I find the whole world of... Philanthropy, is so interesting. It, it, you know what, what, the motives of people. What is it that, that makes someone decide whether they're wealthy or, or or actually not all that wealthy? Whether they're just you know modestly comfortable. What what is it that decides that makes them decide? You know, I'm going to give away this or half of my wealth or you know ten percent of my income or whatever it might be um, to 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 good causes uh, each year. Um, I'm I'm completely fascinated by by people and how they arrive at those at those decisions and and so my research has broadened into into the whole area of philanthropy um, and and as I say the motivations and the the kind of people behind it and the motivations and the structures and so on that we have in philanthropy.
0: And before we get too far away from your work there, working with the House of Commons, I have to say that again, people will often when they wish to make a make some kind of difference in the world, will sometimes pursue the world of social good and sometimes they'll pursue politics. And you had a taste of it working, it sounds like what is the equivalent of the US Congressional Research Service or something like that. Um, And that, that sounds like it was a pretty profound experience. What did it do to your impression of politics and its role in addressing the needs that you saw and imagined? Um, and, and how was that different or complementary to perhaps, maybe even sometimes competitive with the interests of nonprofits, third sector organizations trying to address those same issues?
1: Mm, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I had I did think at various points about about going into politics, but I always much, much preferred the agility and the flexibility and the sort of innovation that 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 I saw in in the in the non-profit sector mm-hmm. um, and you know, I've, I've always felt that the non-profit sector has been able to to react much more quickly to to you know social issues social concerns and and resolve them rapidly what what politicians have is the power to scale that up you know we 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 as charities and non-profits we can you know we can intervene in a in a in a social setting whether it's in in uh, Africa, or whether it's in you know the, the back streets of Boston, or wherever it, where it, wherever we can intervene in a social setting and set up models, and, ideas and ways of working, and and so on that uh, uh, that, that function demonstrate they function. But uh, you know, and eventually, we, eventually we will need the the power of politics and the power of governments to be able to to turn that modest project or program into a nationwide. Project or program, or a nationwide change in policy, or whatever it is that we, whatever it is that uh, that's required. So the two go hand in hand. But I, I, I I infinitely prefer the, the, you know, the small size, the flexibility, the humanity of uh, of the non profit sector, as against the sort of gargantuan business politics. And what what I saw with with Lord Morris um, was that. You know, he was a man of extraordinary principles. His, he 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 would he'd fought and fought and fought for um, the rights of people with disabilities for years and years and years. An absolutely constant, you know, fighter for that, and a very moral individual. But even he had to had to squander his morals or or, or, or tailor his 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 thinking. To the needs of the party, because he needed the, he needed the, the party to push through the policies that he was promoting, and indeed he he managed to push through the the Disability Rights Act in 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 Westminster. But that you know he needed the party mechanism to do that, so he had to be part of the party, and therefore he had to subscribe to the party's views, even if they didn't quite agree with with his own views. So, um, you know that that kind of that kind of uh, you know accepting the the, the 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 need to, to to be part of a bigger group even though it goes against your morals i i would find that pretty difficult you know i i prefer i prefer my slightly neater m- smaller um you know ngos where where we can establish what our values are and share them and and stick with them, you know
0: it's interesting because in the world of nonprofits in this uh world of charity some of those pressures do still sometimes exhibit themselves. And again, this was early in your career, but having a taste of business at the bank and then a taste of politics and seeing the compromises that ensue in order to either produce revenue or produce policy or law. Do you see those things also in the nonprofit world when we, either intersect with institutions, you know, the government for grants, the um, corporations and foundations for gifts, or even individuals uh, in trying to raise revenue.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching um, uh, fundraising, I teach here at the University of Barcelona and at the University of Santiago de Compostela in in Galicia. Uh, When I'm teaching this, I mean, I, you know, we talk a lot about this for me incredibly narrow path that we we as fundraisers have to have to walk along, which, which is, is, you know, we, we are, we're, we are the commercial sellers of the product. You know, that's, that's -hmm. what we, that's what we do, but goodness me, we have to be really careful how we, how we express that, how we do that, how we use that and who we talk to, because unlike selling a car, we're, we're offering the We're trying to get the individual, or the, whether whether she's the whether she's the individual donor, whether she's the president of a company, whether she's the boss of a foundation. We're trying to get the individual to come alongside and share our our values and our 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 vision. So it's it, it you know it's just not not the same as a sort of off the shelf product. It's a it's it's a it's a it's a very morally and ethically very narrow line that we tread. As we try and persuade someone to join to to join us without selling up on 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 our on our beliefs and giving up on our beliefs, and I mean, what's what's interesting in in the very recent years has been, of course, the degree to which business has woken up and said, ah, you know, we too should have values. We too should t- should think about what our purpose is, and you know, we've got the idea now. Of, Purpose driven businesses, you know, that we, we too should think what our purpose is. And it's it's not just about maximizing profits for shareholders. You know, there are other stakeholders here who we should think about too, including our community and our employees and the environment around us and so on. And so I, I, I'm seeing this really fascinating convergence. And I, and I actually think, you know, businesses waking up to the fact that we in the nonprofit sector have been doing this stuff for years and uh, they need us now to help them then work out how they can be a business, which is, which is driven by, by you know, a solid, clear purpose and with, with solid values, and at the same time sell product, because that's what I've been doing for years. This, this idea about the
0: convergence is fascinating as well, and, and I, um, I would like to talk with you more about that. Before we move on from it entirely, though, you did start telling us about the factory and founding that in 1990. And for those who don't know the factory, can you describe what um, what it was meant to be, as well as what it became? You know what, and and also what the environment was like for doing that kind of work in 1990 versus the kind of research that we know today in the nonprofit world.
1: Well. <laughs> There was no environment in the UK in 1990 in terms of, no one had ever heard of the idea of prospect research. It was a completely ridiculous idea. Um, and, uh, and I spent um, at least a year and a half, uh, frankly, living on the earnings of my lovely partner. Uh, because i wasn't earning really almost anything at all trying to trying to pitch this idea to uh, <laughs> to to charities luckily things uh, things have uh, have improved since then so fa- factory it, it, the original conception of what happens now is uh, pretty similar the original conception was that was that we would do uh, i, well, I and, and and then others would do research into potential donors for um for for nonprofits and help nonprofits understand these, these donors better with the intention that they would be able to be more effective and successful in their in their fundraising. it was, it was as simple as that. Um, it, 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 luckily it did take off. it grew um, uh, it grew so so um, so we're now, we're now a team of people in Bristol I mean, it grew slowly initially but then, then grew a bit more rapidly. We're now a team of people based in Bristol in, in England and we carry out, uh, exactly that kind of prospect research. In other words, sort of name by name prospect research. We also do quite a number of studies. So people are looking at, at uh, you know, should we uh, develop a fundraising program uh, in Brazil? Well, we, we can do a study on the you know current philanthropic situation in Brazil and see what they see what's going on and, and then report back to the NGO on, what's, uh, on on what the potential is there. And we also do um, database analysis uh looking at uh looking at don at you know donors and identifying donors with with high potential um uh, that piece has of course gone through an enormous revolution uh because of the provisions of the european data directive which very much limit <clears throat> what we can do with data and and how we should handle data and how we store data and everything else uh all in my view for the for the for the for the good um but uh, we we have developed uh, new and completely compliant methods of, of data analysis, so that we can analyze databases and, as and, and I say, help charities to pick out the, you know, the people with potential. So it's 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 fundamentally uh, you know, prospect research, uh, market research, and and data analysis is what we offer in Bristol, and then I act as a as a consultant working on typically on major donor programs, uh, helping organisations to develop. Uh, their strategies, develop their case, and really develop their understanding of these weird and wonderful people who are philanthropists.
0: So uh, those weird and wonderful people are understood very differently um, today from the way they were then and, and, and in the middle of that arc, of that journey, because I think you're probably relying a lot on very early stage digital resources and a lot of print, and and good old fashioned you know detective work when you started it must have been in 1990 and then in the middle of that you had a very large database of gifts that you'd built that you then determined I guess you your your interpretation of the European data protective would not allow you to use in the same manner um, and then today as you said it, the scope is is different but you seem to feel it's it's uh it's better so I'm I'm curious uh as you look at that arc and you then you say that you think it's for the better how why why is that so how are the how is the environment today um preferable for philanthropy for for the donors um for all of us working in this field
1: Okay, well, let's separate those two two questions, Jay, because excuse, you, you, there's one question there around data, and there's another question there around how philanthropy is evolving. So, mm-hmm. uh, that, that the second one I shall spend three and a half hours lecturing about. But the first, <laughs> <laughs> the first, uh, I can give you a fairly brief answer to. The, the data protection legislation. I mean, uh, none of us would none of us were doing, uh, and uh, you know, I'm not just speaking here about fact. I'm speaking about about prospect researchers in general in 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 the UK none of us were doing anything bad we were all very you know we were all very concerned about the kind of morals and ethics of what we were doing we were very very careful with the data we were using um um but we were using data compiled by uh, organizations with purpose x and we were applying it to purpose y without the knowledge of the of the of the person what they call the data subject in the european legislation and it, eventually something had to crack we you know we we had and and others had built up you know databases of names and addresses of, of people with money you know to to put it bluntly <clears throat> and and we'd done that on public domain sources and we'd done it carefully and we tried to be ethical and so on but you know nonetheless this was a list of you know people at their home addresses with 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 stacks of money um uh, and they didn't know we had that data to be again to be completely blunt about it um so uh it, it, in fact, what happened was it was a sort of actually quite manufactured scandal driven by a um, tabloid newspaper in England called the Daily Mail, um, which created a sort of scandal around the idea that poor old Mrs. Jones was being asked for millions by Charity X because they'd been told by somebody, some screening company, whoever it was, that um, Mrs. Jones was very wealthy. Um and this turned into sort of parliamentary questions, and David Cameron, and then Prime Minister got involved, and, and you know, so the whole thing blew up into into quite a quite a big storm. We, all of us, all of us in the Prospect Research community, realized that we couldn't go on doing this, and we had to think of you know other and better ways of doing this. And in fact, what we did was we <clears throat> we simply destroyed all our data, the whole lot, um, and started again from from zero, in conjunction in, in compliance with. Um, the, the 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 government body in England, which is responsible for, uh, or was when we were part of the EU, responsible for applying the European Data Directive, uh, which is called the Information Commissioner. Um, w- w- in conjunction with them, we 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 dev- devised a whole new way of looking at data in which we had no names, no names at all, but which we 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 used um, address and geodemographic data to to help us identify, um, you know, better prospects and then use. Use other forms of research to to find out to find out more about them. So, it, it was a major turmoil in the in the sector. Um, the Information Commissioner at the time, uh, her team, handled it in a very very aggressive and rough way, and then walked away from the charity sector, you know, without looking backwards, as it were, leaving us all all in quite a lot of disarray. Um, the newspapers, of course once they once they 'd sold their millions of copies then dropped us they weren 't interested in us after a very short while um, but it did force this change and and in terms of it being for the good we we 'd been running a system which we all felt all right about and, and again i 'm just talking across the range and prospect research, but which had a lot of cracks in it the principal crack being that uh, Mrs. Jones didn't know that we had her name on our on our or anyone else's database, you know, um, and that had to that had to end. and And I'm very glad it did. And in fact, in fact, what we've done with the new techniques, we it's forced us to devise new techniques which actually are better, and we're getting better results with our data analysis than we ever had before. So it's you know it's worked out for the for everyone for the good uh, um, overall. So in terms of data, that was a significant kind of moment of change in in my life and our lives. In terms of your your bigger question about philanthropy, um, there's lots and lots of wonderful changes that have gone on. And and if I may, I just mention that I have written a book about this called How Philanthropy is Changing in Europe, which was published a a couple of years ago. Um, But uh, there's lots of significant changes. It's hard to pick out which are the most important. I mean, first of all, I'm based here in Catalonia. In uh, in north uh, northeastern northeastern Spain, and caridad, caridad, which is which is you know charity, the, the 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 original idea of charity here, which is what's been running here for years, is essentially a a a, a, a um, religious requirement to give to the poor, and what we have what has developed here in literally in the last. 20 years has been philanthropy. In other words, uh, a thought through moral, personal desire to make the world a better place. And, and so, for example, uh, the guy I was meeting this morning is, you know, is a modern philanthropist. He has, he runs a charitable foundation, which his family have set up. Um, He has a strategy around his philanthropy. He, uh, He measures impact in his philanthropy. Um, he he tries to attune his business interests to his philanthropic interests. In other words, the thing I said before about more like purpose-driven uh, businesses. You know, um, is he 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 actually prefers not to use the, the word philanthropy. He prefers the phrase uh, social investment. Um, that this has been the most amazing change in this one corner of of continental Europe in the last in the last twenty years. Uh, I mean, I've been lucky enough to. To be involved with the European Venture Philanthropy Association. So I've seen, you know, right from the very beginning, I've seen the development, the, the really burgeoning growth of venture philanthropy as a model here in continental Europe. Um, so it, 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 that, you know, that the sort of attitudes that go behind venture philanthropy, in other words, the idea of an investment—the idea of an investment you can pull out of—the idea that you measure impact, the idea that you get engaged with the cause that you're you're um, you're supporting, um, the idea of using clever forms of finance—you might use a loan, or you might use uh, quasi-equity, or whatever—to to engage with with uh, with the social problem that you're trying to resolve. This sort of stuff, which it just wasn't—it was not it wasn't, it just no one even thought of that, you know, 20 years ago, and here we are in, in this fantastically and fascinatingly changing, uh, world of philanthropy here in Europe. There you are. That's three, three and a half hours and three minutes.
0: <laughs> well, that just means that everybody has to read the book as well, which is, which is a good thing. But yeah, I know that probably in the book, you address, uh, a number of things, not only the change and all those positive aspects, but what the terrain looks like for philanthropy going forward. And this central question about is it is it growing or is it shrinking? Is it is it addressing the needs that people are identifying or not? And you work a lot on the environment, I understand now. And that's a central issue for um, for many organizations, but not for all. It's also something that's led to kind of complexities in how individual nations are addressing their policies, as well as how they're doing it uh, collectively, either loosely associated or uh, tightly linked and you've lived through Brexit. Yeah I mean actually the, the I guess the European Union coming together and then uh Britain leaving it. So as you look at all that how are you seeing philanthropy as a contributor a growing contributor to those positive changes and where maybe the better question is what still frustrates you where do you see an opportunity for a philanthropy that it has not yet Embraced to address issues like the environment.
1: Well, I think I think we uh, we one uh, well, has to start that the answer to that question with with, with a bit of realism. I mean, there are um, around uh, eight thousand. I think there's around eight thousand, eight and a half thousand charitable foundations here in Spain. I mean, let's talk about you know Spain. I can talk about other European countries as well. The map, the map is quite similar, but there's you know there's thousands of of registered charitable foundations the number of those foundations that i would say are running you know modern uh impact focused um uh you know f- f- strategic philanthropic programs uh is i mean it it, it might be 200 or or it might be 300 but it, it, you know it's it might be even 500 conceivably but it's it's not much more than that in other words there is a huge tail in in charity um, well, let's call it charity. And a huge tale in charity of organizations that are still very, very stuck in in the charity model and are you know are are you know still largely uh, managed along very sort of old fashioned pyramidal lines and it, 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 there's just a lot of there's a lot of backwater in in the world of 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 charity. In Spain, and, and I'm absolutely not criticising Spain. There, the same It's absolutely true in Italy or France, uh, uh, in Germany, in the Netherlands. Uh, um, you know, the, in continental Europe, this is a very common pattern: There's sort of few leaders and then a long tail um, behind. And so, it's not a frustration. It's a, it's a, actually it's a sort of almost a, a vision or a job. You know, how to get more of those organisations moving moving ahead moving forward into in terms of the way they they think and the way they manage their their um their charity and their and their organization and that's partly what's drawn me into teaching so i you know i i i teach and i give classes and master classes and talks and so on um and you know i love 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 that because because i hope uh i'm moving people forward a wee bit the 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 other and, and also because I learn so much when I'm doing it, of course, I learn so much about what, what people are are doing. And sometimes it's amazing what they're doing. Um the other the other part of this is though this convergence. You know, if if, if we'd said to if we said to a um you know a French business owner twenty years ago, um uh, you know, you you've got your business on on the one hand and you've got the your donations on the other hand, we would like to talk to you about Merging those two things, about bringing those two ideas together, those two sets of values together, and you know, m- m- drawing your business and your and your charitable world together, she would have been she would have been horrified because the, the the ethics in France, particularly, but also in 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 most of continental Europe, was that your charity was stuff that you did. It was very private, very secret. You did not talk about it to anybody at all. Um, you certainly didn't never boasted about it. You often did it anonymously. And it, it, well, it had to be completely separate from your business activities, the, the, the biblical idea that the left hand shouldn't know what the right hand is doing um, and what's happened, and it's in large part thanks to the models drawn up and created by the venture philanthropists, <laughs> has been this incredible convergence between business and and philanthropy. So again, another philanthropist I know here who uh, runs a, a large pharmaceutical concern here. You know, he's he has totally decided to focus his business and his charity. You know, they have a family foundation. You know, on the same stuff on on making lives better for people. You know, and the profit part that you know he, he would he would probably describe um, as you know the social profit that results from the things he's doing. That that's, that's just a Ginormous change from how things uh, how things used to be and how things used to be used to be seen. So there is this this incredible future, I think, of bringing together businesses that really want to, or business leaders particularly that really want to, business people I call them, they really want to make uh, make change that really get the idea around around you know purpose and social purpose for for companies. Bringing them together with all of us guerrillas and the uh, guerrillas—I mean, in the Spanish sense—who um, are working in the uh, in the non-profit sector and doing better for society and the environment um, through that 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 convergence. And of course, in the business sector, but you know, there's going to be some. There's always going to be some nasty profit-only kind of guys and girls, but 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 hopefully. Uh, it, it, we can move enough of the of the sort of leading businesses toward this converged model that we can start to make you know make an actual difference. I mean, I, as you said, I'm working with um, with a small foundation here in Barcelona called Fundación Terra T-E-R-R-A, um, meaning Earth in Catalan, of course, um, which is focused on the on the climate emergency, and which is a a personal passion and 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 a wonderful wonderful place to be to be working. And, you know, I'm looking out at a business community which is getting more and more and more interested in environment and the impact that they're having and looking to reduce impact. And some of it is greenwashing, of course it is. But a lot of it is actual, you know, real human beings in organizations that really want to make their organizations change. And I think that's, that's you know, that, that bodes really, really well if we can get the shift moving fast enough.
0: I, I want to ask you about... Another thing that we've all just lived through, and I understand it may have been particularly painful in Spain, and that's the pandemic, which continues as we speak, but not the way it was. How is that for you, for your family and for that matter, for the sector, because if fundamentally it's about helping other people? Um, it was not an easy time to try and help other people when we're also trying to help ourselves and our families. How was that experience for you?
1: Well, so, so many people carried on helping other people despite having serious problems in their own families. I mean, I I found it a really, in that sense, a really wonderful and reassuring reminder that, you know, that, 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 as I said before, humanity, I think, is fundamentally generous, you know. Um, and there's just there's so many examples of people helping others in so many ways. And I'm sure you saw them all the way across the, the US as well. You know, people, you know, making sure their, their neighbours got fed, bringing food for them, cooking meals for them, um, looking after, you know, family members while someone was in hospital. I mean, there's just so many, so many cases of of that. Um, and, you know, the charity sector certainly in in Europe, you know the big foundations particularly you know they did a pivot straight away and started focusing on uh, on 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 people who are suffering and people who are, who were in need and, and 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 trying to help out in you know in in, in many ways I mean at home well I, I live I live in an old Catalan farmhouse um two miles two and a half miles away from the nearest the nearest village um in twelve acres of forest. Uh, with four donkeys, six sheep, and assorted chickens and two dogs, so our actual you know life at home didn't change that much. We had to go out every day and change and feed the donkeys and feed the sheep and make sure everything was all right and you know dig the trenches and all that sort of stuff. So life did in that sense didn't didn't change that that much. And we were very fortunate in not being touched in my direct family by with with by COVID at all. Um, but of course, it changed my The way i work so for years i've been getting on airplanes about once a fortnight and flying to geneva or amsterdam or or dubai or abu dhabi or or mexico or wherever as you know as a consultant and going and working with organizations face to face and trying to work out how they could improve their work with philanthropists and develop strategies for philanthropists and so on and of course instantly that stopped and i actually realized that quite a lot of that traveling I really, really could have done, as we're doing now, on a on a Zoom call. You know, I really didn't actually have to go to Geneva that time to meet those people. I could have really done it on a, a Zoom call and saved a lot of time and energy and burnt burnt hydrocarbons in the atmosphere and everything else. Um, so it, I became, you know, much more home based of it. So it was fully home based, of course, initially, in, as, as COVID COVID hit, and then um, you know gradually travelled a wee bit more. And now I'm much, much more circumspect about travelling. You know, if we can if we can do the job um, on Zoom, it saves the client time, it saves the client a lot of money, um, it saves the environment. You know, so I'm very happy to to, to work like this at distance. Although, of course, one discovers the limitations of that, and you know, there is something about human contact, about giving someone a hug or giving someone a a handshake or whatever, which is impossible to reproduce online.
0: When we began the conversation, you talked about going to places where people shared their nothing with you. And it, it strikes me that, that that kind of sharing can take place in so many different ways. And whether you're living as you are now or you're in this a big city somewhere, um, that there are lots of different avenues for people to share that natural generosity. Do you think that anything we've lived through in the last couple of decades? Will inform the way that people express that generosity going forward, especially because fundraising itself has changed a little bit, right? It changed uh, in terms of how we deal with prospect research as you've described. It's changed in terms of whether or not you need to jump on a plane and go and see somebody for a solicitation, perhaps. Do you imagine that we are going to change and evolve and improve? And if so, what does that look like?
1: Boy, I sincerely hope we do, as we've got a lot of evolution to do. <laughs> um, I I don't have a crystal ball, Jay. I, I can't. I can't. I can't tell. And you know, we've had sort of sudden shocks recently, like this terrible war in Ukraine and so on. You know, so we there's. I can't. Uh, I can't sit here and say how I think. The future is necessarily going to be. I, th- I think. I think fundamentally, this gets us back to the to the topic I started off with with poverty. I think fundamentally, um, and here here we we cross over probably into into an area of politics. I think fundamentally, what's been demonstrated in the last twenty years is that the <clears throat> this pure neoliberal model that uh, your Ronald Reagan and our Margaret Thatcher uh, brought into to politics um, just it just doesn't do the job. Uh, it just doesn't allow the majority of people to lead, uh, lead uh, decent and, and comfortable lives. It allows the very few people to lead very comfortable and very luxurious lives. And thankfully, some of those are wonderful philanthropists, but it doesn't let the majority uh, do that. And I think I think uh, the, the evolution that I see is absolutely, absolutely inevitable because I can't see this current neoliberal system as being sustainable. I think the evolution that's absolutely you know, essential is that we share. We learn to share out resources in a much fairer way. And charities have been showing for years how to do that and, and 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 what to do, and they've learned how to manage it and everything else. But it's again, we're back to you know scale. How to make, put that up to scale, and that's that's down to governments to do. So I I, I, I can't see this current system surviving. I think it, it it's absolutely not sustainable either in terms of poverty or in terms of environment. Um, so I think we have to, uh, we, we have to change. And what I'm not sure is, is where, that, where that change will come from, how, how it will be, be affected. I mean, we're seeing right now, for example, we're seeing protests in, you know, in the Middle East against authoritarian regimes. We're seeing a war in Ukraine in which a, a country is holding out against an author- authoritarian uh, regime. You know, We're seeing, uh, and we're going to see this winter, uh, certainly in Europe, a lot of civil protest because of the rate at which prices have, have risen and wages have not. Um, so I think we're going to see, you know, it, it, the protest, whether wh- whether that leads this year or whether it leads next year or in 10 years time or 20 years time to a change, it will, I think have to lead to a change in the way we, we organize our, our societies because there has to be uh a fairer way of of distributing the goods amongst amongst everybody, in part because, as has been shown repeatedly by organisations like the OECD, um, the neoliberal method just just it doesn't work in terms of cost. It, it costs more to run a uh, an economy under those neoliberal guidelines than it does under a, under a fairer set of guidelines. The the wealth gap in itself is a costly uh, luxury that a few countries maintain. So. I, I hope. I think, and hope we're going to see we're going to see change. I think that, again, the, the non profit sector can really lead that change because we've been doing this stuff for years. We've been redistributing wealth. We've we've been, you know, dragging, helping drag people out of abject poverty. You know, we've been working with the. Um, you know hiv aids positive person on the street in barcelona which is I, i've also volunteered here with uh, organizations working on hiv aids you know we work with people on the streets here in 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 barcelona uh, we know w- what the the underbelly of civilization is and i think i think we 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 can be leaders of 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 change uh, the minute that the governments become receptive to the, the, to those ideas
0: The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.